Hey church, this is Pastor Matt Zola from Fern Creek Christian Church. So glad you're able to tune in with us today here on FC Radio. I hope this message encourages you in your walk of faith and helps you to become a better follower of Jesus. Check out our website at www.ferncreekcc.org and let us know how we can be praying for you. Here's the message. All right, well, hey, good morning, church. Morning. Hey, it is so good to be with you this morning. Hey, uh, happy Super Bowl Sunday to you. Hope you have uh, some big plans for the Super Bowl this afternoon. Uh, this is one of my favorite uh, Sundays in the year because um, Jesus and football, uh, it just doesn't get better than that. I want to make sure got that order right. I said that right because that is the order. Um, but I hope you are just enjoying uh, Super Bowl Sunday and having a great weekend. Um, if you're new with us, just checking us out. Uh, welcome. Glad you're here worshiping with us. If you're on our online campus, hey, so glad you guys have tuned in to worship with us this morning. Uh, this morning, I have the privilege of opening a brand new series with you. Uh, as you can see from our bumper, uh, we're going to walk through a sermon series called Kings and kingdoms. And so what, what we're gonna do uh, in this Kings and Kingdoms sermon series is we're gonna kind of walk through first and second kings. We're gonna look at the kings and what they did, uh, but more importantly, we're gonna look at what we can learn from the kings. And now I believe that uh, the kings is not only a huge part of the historical portion of scripture, but I think there are very, some very practical lessons we can learn from these kings. And so today, I get to share with you the story of Jeroboam. Say that with me, Jeroboam, right? It's kind of a funny name. The first time I remember hearing the name Jeroboam was in Bible college. I was told my wife, Kaylin, hey, we should name our kid Jeroboam. And then I found out who Jeroboam is, and I was like, ah, never mind. All right, uh, so advice, don't name your kid Jeroboam. You'll see, you'll see later. All right, so King Jeroboam, uh, was a guy that was looked on very favorably. He, he had a lot of intelligence, had a lot of wealth, so a big reason of why he was looked on very favorably. Uh, Jeroboam is gonna be the first king of the northern kingdom that we talk about today. And before we get to kind of the story of King Jeroboam, I kinda wanna catch you up on where we are in this story. And so essentially the story starts in Exodus. When the Israelites are in Egypt, they're in slavery, they get delivered out of Egypt, out of slavery and into the promised land. And while they're in the promised land, they have what we like to call prophets. And if you don't know what a prophet is, a prophet is somebody that speaks to God's people on behalf of God. And so while the Israelites were stuck with these little old prophets, they looked around and said, well, these other cities and kingdoms have kings while we have prophets. Everybody else around us has a king and we'd like a king, God. So they reach out to God and they, say, they ask for a king and God answers that with the first king, King Saul. And so here's this slide here of how the kingship goes in God's kingdom. So the first king that God gives is King Saul. There then we see King David and Mr. Wiseman, King Solomon. And then after King Solomon, his son becomes king, King Rehoboam. And that's kind of where we, where we start in the story is that in scripture, we see that God tells Solomon, because you have turned your eyes away from me, 
Because your kingdom has turned your eyes away from me, I'm going to rip away your kingdom. But I'm gonna wait until your son, King Rehoboam, is king. So I'm not gonna do it while you're alive, Solomon. I'm gonna wait till you die and your, your son is king to rip that away. And so during this time, we see Jeroboam is looked on very favorably by Solomon. And so Solomon sees Jeroboam and puts him in charge of his labor force. And so while Jeroboam is in charge of his labor force, a prophet comes to Jeroboam. And so we see that story in 1 Kings 11. So you can turn to that, you can look at that with us today. That'll be on the screen, I'll encourage you to look at that. We're gonna read a little bit differently today than we normally do, all right? It's gonna be a little more interactive, all right, so how this is gonna work is there will be the words on the screen. The portion that is underlined, I'd like you to read, and the portion that is not underlined, I'll read. That sound good? Yes, you guys seem excited, so I'm excited. All right, let's do this. All right, 1 Kings 11, 29 through 31 says this. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone in the country and Ahijah took a hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. See, I am going to All right, so here we see in 1 Kings that a prophet comes to Jeroboam. He says, listen, Jeroboam, you're gonna be king, essentially, and we're going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon's hand. So the prophet tells Jeroboam this, and that story goes on in 1 Kings 11, 37 to 38. He says, however, for, as for you, Jeroboam, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. So God sends a prophet to Jeroboam and tells Jeroboam, listen, you are going to be king of my kingdom and you will do that for a very long time and you will rule over all that your heart desires if you just remember this one thing, if you just do this one thing for me, which is follow my commands and do what is right in my eyes. The first thing I want you to kind of understand from this portion of scripture is that this is God promising to Jeroboam that he's gonna be king. And it's only God that can give Jeroboam that promise. I want you to kind of remember that, kind of stick that in the back of your brain towards the end, we will kind of come full circle to that. And so what happens next in the story is that King Solomon dies. King Rehoboam, his son, becomes king, and this is where the ripping away of the kingdom starts. And so we kind of see Rehoboam's first responsibility as king. 
And so Rehoboam's first responsibility as king is to kind of answer an ask from Israel. The Israelites come to King Rehoboam and they say, hey, King Rehoboam, your, your father, King Solomon, had a very heavy yoke, a very heavy load on us. And we'd love it since you're king now for you to lighten that on us. We're not asking for a lot, we're just asking that you would, you would lighten that load. And so King Rehoboam goes to his elders to seek advice and his buddies and friends to ask them what he thinks they should do. And so King Rehoboam essentially tells the Israelites three days later, if you think that King Solomon, my father's load or yoke was heavy, just wait until I get my hands on you. And so out of King Rehoboam's arrogance causes a split in God's kingdom. There's essentially a, a civil war that breaks out in God's kingdom. And so up until this point, God's kingdom is united. It's one kingdom, right? And, and when Rehoboam becomes king, his kingdom is split. And so because of that, we get a northern kingdom, which we call Israel, and a southern kingdom, which we call Judah. Now down in the southern kingdom in Judah, this is where King Rehoboam will be king. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, this is where Jeroboam will be king. And so once Jeroboam becomes king, we see Jeroboam's first action as king. In 1 Kings 12, 26 through 27, it says this, Jeroboam thought to himself, unless I am careful, the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. When these people go to? To offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their? To King Rehoboam of Judah they will kill me and make him king instead. So in Jeroboam's first action as king, we see this emotion of fear come over him. A, a, a fear that his kingdom, that his people are gonna be ripped away from him when they go down to Jerusalem to worship. First Kings 12, 28 through 30 says this, so on the advice of his counselors, the king made two golden calves he said to the people, he placed these calf idols in Bethel and in Dan at either end of his kingdom. But this became a great sin for the people traveling as far north as Dan to worship the one there. So we see this fear drives Jeroboam in his first action as king. King Jeroboam thinks to himself, man, I just got this kingdom. I just, I just got these people to start to follow me, to have their allegiance towards me, and I really don't want to lose that. And so Jeroboam builds a couple altars in Bethel and Dan, as the scripture says, he is fearful that he will lose his kingdom when they go down to Jerusalem to worship. What he's indicating there is that God told the Israelites that they need to go to Jerusalem at least once a year, if not more, to worship at the temple. 
Every Israelite knew that. That's what God had told them. So God had set the location of worship and it needed to happen in Jerusalem. But out of fear, Jeroboam says, so I don't lose my people back to Rehoboam. I just got this thing. So I don't lose them back to the Southern Kingdom. I'm gonna build a place of worship and Bethel and Dan. Here's a slide of Bethel and Dan, a kind of a map of the two kingdoms. And as you can see at the very top there in the green outlined for you is the city of Dan. That's the northern kingdom up there in Israel. And then all the way down to where the border of the north and south meet is the city called Bethel outlined in yellow. There in red in the southern kingdom of Judah is Jerusalem. That's where God told the Israelites, you need to go at least once a year to worship. As you look at this map with me, where Bethel is outlined in yellow, what do you notice about it? What's the first thing you notice? The first thing that I notice about this map of where Bethel is, is it's extremely close to Jerusalem, right? You know what Bethel means? Bethel means house of God. Right, so, so Jeroboam is thinking to himself, he's like, I'm gonna put an altar in Bethel and I'm gonna put one in Dan, one at the very beginning of the town and one at the very end of the town, or the kingdom, right? And he, and he thinks to himself, okay, so I don't lose my kingdom when they go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna build this here so they stay here. And Jeroboam thinks to himself, why do we need to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship when we have the house of God, Bethel, right here in our kingdom? And so God says, the location of worship is in Jerusalem. And Jeroboam says, no, out of convenience, I will do this here in Bethel and Dan. It'd be kind of like if I said, you know what my favorite place is? You know, one of my favorite places to go is Huber Farms. You know that farm up in Indiana, you get to go up there and pick your pumpkins or, or your Christmas trees or whatever it is. If I said, man, I love that place. But one of the things I hate about Huber is it's trying to drive an hour and a half through the country to get there. That's one of my favorite things, so it's not true. But if I said that is, I just don't like driving an hour and a half up there. I said, well, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna hire some people to build me a Huber's farm in downtown Louisville. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna put that in downtown Louisville. I'm gonna put it right on the river there, nice and beautiful in downtown Louisville, right? I'm gonna put it, I'm gonna put it right there in downtown Louisville because you know what? It, it's practically in Indiana, right? Downtown's practically in Indiana. Like, Indiana's right across the river, but we don't have to go over the bridge, pay the tolls, and drive an hour and a half to get to Huber's, right? So not only does Jeroboam give him more a more convenient place to worship. He also gives them an image of Yahweh. First Kings 12, 28 says this, so on advice of his counselors, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much trouble for you to go worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Look at that phrase again. Look, Israel, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Does that phrase ring a bell? Does that remind you, does it sound familiar to you? 
If you've read through the Old Testament, and especially Exodus, you'll find that phrase in Exodus 32, when we see the story of Aaron with the Israelites. And so Aaron is with the Israelites, they're waiting on Moses, getting very impatient, and say to Aaron, hey buddy, could you make us some gods so that we can worship here? And Aaron, just like Jeroboam, makes some gods and in, for the Israelites, and instead of the focus on Yahweh, it's the focus on replacing him. You remember in the beginning when we talked about the kings, how, how the Israelites had prophets and everybody else had kings. And the Israelites asked for a king, right? They asked God for a king. Do you remember why they asked for a king? Because everybody else had one, right? Jeroboam does the same thing here. He looks around at the other cities, at the other kingdoms, and he says, well, that city's got an altar. They've got golden calves. They've got images of Yahweh. They've got images of God. Why can't we have one? Jeroboam starts to play politician here. He says, I know for a fact that when these Israelites go down to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, that it would be a much nicer location of worship than the ones I build in Dan and Bethel. But not only that, Jeroboam knows that it'll be more symbolic at the temple in Jerusalem. One of the things that was in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? More importantly, do you remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant, right? It was the Ten Commandments. There were several items in the temple that were symbolic to the Israelites, that were almost like a celebration, a reminder of where they had been and, and how God had provided for them. And so Jeroboam gives them these images. As we talk about the Ark of the Covenant and what was in it, the Ten Commandments, Jeroboam knew that they, would, they were used to some kind of physical symbol, some kind of image, right? And so Jeroboam knew that it would be more symbolic as they went down there. So he said to himself, I need to make a physical image of Yahweh. Think to yourself, why is what Jeroboam does here sinful? Why is this wrong, what, what Jeroboam decides to do to, to make something, an image of Yahweh? Why is that sinful? We ask our question, is that because the one in the temple in Jerusalem had images of Yahweh, right? How Jeroboam does this is sinful because he tries to take a man-made God, a man-made image, a man-made thing to resemble the invisible God. And it's sinful because there's no thing, there's no image, there's no God that we could create, there's no thing, portrait that we can create in front of us or that Jeroboam in this time could create that could accurately articulate the glory or the presence of Yahweh God. You can't do it. We can't do it today, and he can't do it. Jeroboam takes a physical God to resemble, to reflect the invisible God. This kinda comes full circle in Colossians 1.15. It says the Son is the image of the invisible God. God knew, he, he, he was telling the Israelites, listen, I don't want you to have these images of Yahweh because that will be Jesus. 
I want your focus to be there when he comes, not on these calves that you've created. And so you kind of think to yourself, man, Jeroboam, we are not off to a great start, buddy. He goes even further in 12, 31, 33. It says, Jeroboam also erected buildings at the pagan shrines and ordained priests from the common people. Those who were not from the priestly tribe of Levi. And Jeroboam instituted a religious festival in Bethel, held on the 15th day of the eighth month in imitation of the annual festival of shelters in Judah. There at Bethel, he himself offered sacrifices to the calves he had made, and he appointed priests from the pagan shrines he had made. So, Jeroboam offered sacrifices on the altar at Bethel. He instituted a religious festival for Israel, and he went up to the altar to burn incense. Not only does God set the location of worship needs to be in Jerusalem, but he says, once a year, I want you to go back to Jerusalem for this festival where you will celebrate where I've brought you from. You will celebrate who I am, you will celebrate as a community. And that is to be done on the 15th day of the seventh month. And like with the altars, Jeroboam counters God and says, no, our festival will be held up here in Israel and it will be done on the 15th day of the eighth month. God sets the time and place and Jeroboam says, no, let's do it a month later. But again, Jeroboam doesn't stop there. 1231 says, Jeroboam also erected buildings at the pagan shrines and ordained priests from the common people, those who were not from the priestly tribe of Levi. From what tribe were the priests supposed to come from? The tribe of Levi, right? God had said, God had told the Israelites, your priests need to come from the tribe of Levi, Jeroboam disregards God's commands again and again and again. God had said the location of worship was to be in Jerusalem. God said, I want you to go there and I want you to worship in Jerusalem, that's the location. Jeroboam said no. We will worship, my kingdom will worship in Bethel and in Dan. God had said the time for this festival, this time of worship will be on the 15th day of the seventh month. Jeroboam said, no, we'll hold our own festival on the 15th day of the eighth month. God said, I, I want your priests to come from the tribe of Levi. And Jeroboam says, no, we have no requirements. Anybody can be a priest. God had promised Jeroboam, listen, you're, you're, I'm picking you to be my king. And the only thing you have to do is follow me and do what is right in my eyes. That's all he had to do. And because of the sin of Jeroboam, he lost it all. Because of Jeroboam's sin, he lost it all. Jeroboam spent his time as king trying to replace God as the number one authority in his life. Jeroboam spent countless hours, countless times placing power 
authority, even convenience in the spot of God's rightful place. What is idolatry? Idolatry is defined as the worship of an item, a thing, or a person in place of God, right? It's an item, a person, or a thing in place of God. It's taking anything in our lives and placing it above God, or taking anything in our lives and putting it in God's rightful place. This was the sin of Jeroboam. And through studying the text this week, I've realized that this is also the sin of Matthew. I've realized that I, that I do it all the time, right? We do, we do it as Americans all the time. We take items, we take things, and we take people, and we place them above God, or we place them in God's rightful place. And so maybe for you, it's your money. Maybe, maybe you feel like you just, you just don't trust God with your money. And that's what you've pursued your entire life. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's fame or, or this pursuit of a successful career so that others think of you as a successful person. Or maybe you're like Jeroboam. And it's, it's, it's this pursuit of power, authority, influence, control. Maybe you're like some of us, and it's material things. Maybe you're one of those people that, that have spent your entire life, that loves technology and brand new things, buying everything you can get your hands on, spending your life accumulating stuff to, be, to, to feel worth something. But maybe for some of you, you've placed you in God's rightful place. Maybe for some of you, you spent your entire life saying, I'm the authority. I'm the one that makes decisions. Maybe you've spent your entire life saying, I'm my idol. I have an idol. It's called comparison. And I've dealt with this idol of comparison my entire life. And when I say my entire life, I really do mean my entire life. As most of you know, I've got a twin brother that lives down in Florida. We're identical twins, which means we look alike and naturally do a lot of the same things. We're both male Americans, so not really a great start to comparison. But. When I was a kid, we did everything together. We played ball together, we went to church together, we had the same friends, we went to school together, we did everything together. But as a kid, I remember growing up with Michael and comparing myself to him all the time. Always trying to compare myself to make sure that I was better than him. As a kid, I remember asking myself, am I a better student than my brother? Am I a better ball player than my brother? My better friend than my brother. I was always comparing myself to my brother, asking myself, am I better? And so I've, uh, as I've grown up as an adult, I've realized that this has trickled into my adult life. 
One way that I've noticed this happening is driving my truck down the road and I'll see cars or other trucks and I'll see a car and be like, that's, that's a really nice car. My truck's not worth that much. Wish I had the money to buy something like that person bought. Or I'll drive and see another truck and be like, man, that's a nicer truck, newer truck, more bells and whistles. Man, if I had that truck, I'd be happy. I'll drive through neighborhoods and look at houses. Be like, man, that's, that's a good looking house right there. That's a nice house. I wish I could afford a house like that. My house is half the price of that. Man, I wish I was making money like that person. There's times that I'll pull out my phone in the mornings, start to scroll through Instagram and Facebook, say, man, I don't get to travel like that person does. Man, I wish I had the money that that person had. Or man, why can't I be as successful as that person? Why can't I look like that person? Man, I wish I could speak like that person. Comparison's my idol. It really is. I wanna ask you, what do you love the most? What do you think about the most? Like at the end of your life, like at the end of the day, like what is it that you spent the most time thinking about? Charles Spurgeon said this once, if you love anything better than God, you are idolaters. If there's anything you would not give up for God, it's your idol. If there's anything you seek with greater fervor than you seek the glory of God, that is your idol. And conversion means turning from every idol. I love what John Calvin says. He says, the human heart is an idol factory. You see, idolatry is not just some ancient practice. It's not something that the Israelites dealt with years and years ago. You know, some Bible scholars actually believe that the reason we're empty, the reason that we are broken, the reason that we are the way that we are is because of idolatry. What you find your hope in, what you find your security in, what you find your purpose in, that's your God. John Piper once said, we make a God out of whatever we find most joy in. So find joy in God and be done with all idolatry. My prayer today is that you find your hope, that you find your purpose, that you find your security, that you find your joy in King Jesus. That's my prayer today. This week, what I want you to do is to have a conversation with God. Each morning, before you get up and brush your teeth, before you take a shower, before you scroll through Instagram, I want you to have a conversation with God. I want you to say, God, what is it? What is it in my life that I've placed above you? What is it in my life, God? What is the one thing that I've put in your rightful place? God, what is my idol? And I want you to ask God each morning to speak to me. God, speak to me, what is it and what is it you're calling me 
to do. You see, as a church, we're a body of disciples that are seeking to love, live, and lead like Jesus. That's who we are. And, and if we're going to do that, part of living like Jesus is making sure that God is the number one authority in our lives. And part of loving like Jesus is making sure that we love him more than we love our money, more than we love our careers, and more than we love ourselves. Let's pray.